Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called God's Unlimited Patience for My Imperfect Progress. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 12, 2010. When my family had our picture taken for the church directory, Olin Mills encouraged us to upgrade to a touch-up. For an extra $10, the touch-up would erase age lines, blemishes, wrinkles, sagging skin, and even the glare on my forehead. An airbrush here, a digitalization there, and my photographic image would look considerably better than the human reality that I see in the mirror every morning. Yes, we bought the upgrade. As we left the studio, I wish that my progress in the Christian life could be as simple. Of course, you can find books, seminars, and sermons that promise to repair your marriage, fix your finances, teach you to pray, or make you the best parent on the block, all in a few easy steps. But my 40 years of Christian experience has proven otherwise. The superficial touch-ups feel more like predictable setups. There's a big difference between burnishing my image and transforming my reality. When you pay attention to the Psalms, though, you discover a liberating truth, that before God we can be both truly Christian and fully fallen. In Martin Luther's idiom, at the one and the same time, we're both saint and sinner. This is one of the reasons that monastic communities immerse themselves in the Psalms, reading, singing, and chanting their way through all 150 Psalms every few weeks for the rest of their lives. The Psalms range the gamut of human emotion and experience. These ancient poets celebrate, praise, and rejoice, but they also vent their bitterness, anger, loneliness, regret, and despair. In her marvelous book, Cloister Walk, Kathleen Norris recalls how, as a little girl, going to church meant dressing up, both literally in pretty clothes and figuratively in superficial cheerfulness. As an adult, the Psalms liberated her from this impossible and oppressive standard, for they charted all the complexities and contradictions of her normal human experience. The Psalms taught Norris that praise and optimism are not the same thing, that anger need not be suppressed, that wanting God to slay your enemies can feel good, even though it's wrong, and that she need not repress offensive emotions, and that their religious experiences mirrored her own inner chaos. In short, says Norris, the Psalms are, quote, unrelenting in their realism about the human psyche, end quote, freeing her to walk honestly and openly, openly with God. Other saints have made similar sober observations about Christian progress. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer remarked that disillusionment with the church is actually a good thing because it disabuses us of false expectations of perfection. 
Lewis Smedes, former professor at Fuller Seminary, wrote that one of the reasons he joined the Christian Reformed Church was because of its modest expectations, which comforted him, quote, in view of the sluggish pace of my own spiritual improvement. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, which has shaped his denomination's heritage, contains a long exposition of all the Ten Commandments, after which it asks whether a Christian might keep these commandments perfectly. The catechetical response is shocking in its candor. Quote, no, for even the holiest believer makes only a small beginning in obedience in this life. End quote. The two psalms from the lectionary this week elucidate why Christian maturity proceeds in fits and starts rather than as one victory after another. If the great American religion is optimism and denial, the biblical view of things begins with the bad news of sin. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In Augustine's famous phrase, we're not able not to sin. This doesn't mean that every person always sinks to his moral nadir, but rather that there's no part of any one of us that is not morally and spiritually compromised. Our human frailty bespeaks breadth, if not depth. Similarly, in the famous Psalm 51 this week, David, who elsewhere is described as a man after God's own heart, Acts 13.22, confesses his sins, plural, of adultery and murder. But he also confesses his deeper problem of sin in the singular, that he has, as he puts it, been born a sinner from birth, Psalm 51.5. In medical terms, he struggles with acute episodic sinful actions, but his underlying malady is a chronic congenital sinful condition that he will struggle with the rest of his life. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In the very last paragraph of his book, Christianity, the First 3,000 Years, Oxford's D.R. Maid McCullough thus observes that, quote, original sin is one of the more plausible concepts within the Western Christian package corresponding all too accurately with everyday human experience. John Donne's famous Sonnet 14 is unsparing in its realism about our captivity to the powers of sin and evil. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. 
Yet dearly I love you and would love and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me shall never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. Echoing the psalmist, John Donne longs to love God and to be loved by him. He labors hard to do so, but he confesses that he's weak, captive, untrue, betrothed to the enemy. His only hope is that God would, quote, batter his heart. There's no use asking for a finishing hammer when what we need is a sledgehammer. In the epistle for this week, Paul describes himself as the worst of all sinners. Before his conversion, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man who murdered Christians. Paul uses himself as an example that however imperfect our Christian progress, God has what he calls unlimited patience. We should fully accept, writes Paul, that Jesus welcomes sinners just like us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12-17 And that's exactly what we find in the gospel for this week in Luke 15, 1 and 2. Jesus mingling with the despised tax collectors and people of ill repute, much to the chagrin of the religiously righteous establishment. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, they muttered. On that case, they were right. My wife once heard about a study on national public radio that suggested that the most successful marriages had modest, realistic expectations. <clears throat> on the journey with Jesus, says the Heidelberg Catechism, Every believer should, quote, begin with serious purpose to conform not only to some, but to all the commandments of God, end quote. True enough, but we also journey with the sober realization that as pilgrims, we're a long way from our ultimate destination. However far and long we journey, we'll only make a small beginning, but that's okay because nothing should shake our confidence that God's unlimited patience will take us all the way home. For books this week, I review Bill McKibben, Earth, Making a Life on a Tough New Planet, New York, Times Books, 2010. 253 pages. For about 10,000 years, human civilization has enjoyed planet Earth with its remarkable Goldilocks nature. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right for plants, animals, and humanity itself to flourish. But the best scientific data on climate change and global warming now conclusively show that in the last 200 years, we've permanently altered this sweet spot, and it's never going to return. We now live on a different planet, says Bill McKibben, and to force ourselves to face this new reality, he suggests a new name in the title of his book, Earth with Two A's, 
E-A-A-R-T-H. Since the publication of his book, The End of Nature, in 1989, the first book about climate change written for a general audience, McKibben has built a reputation as probably the nation's leading environmentalist and the person that Time Magazine calls the world's best green journalist. This elegy for the earth might also establish his reputation as the most ruthlessly realistic or pessimistic environmentalist. In hundreds of stories and statistics about rising sea temperatures and acidity, expanding tropics, bark beetles that have destroyed millions of acres of forests in the Rockies, Arctic ice melting at record speed, and peak oil, he shows how permanent environmental disaster is not some speculation about a future threat that we might pass on to our grandchildren. It's an irreversible catastrophe that happened not long ago with our parents. And as so often is the case, the poor of the world, who've contributed the least to these problems, bear the brunt force of their consequences. The earth as we knew it is gone forever. Whereas standard wisdom once indicated that we might safely get by with a maximum of 550 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, scientists have now concluded that the maximum is probably 350 parts per million. We're already at 390, and at least one British study indicates that it is improbable that we will be able to stop short of 650 parts per million even if we adopt draconian measures. At best, writes McKibben, we're like the guy who smoked for 40 years and then he had a stroke. He doesn't smoke anymore, but the left side of his body doesn't work either. Some of, his worst, some of the worst advice we're getting, says McKibben, comes from the so-called green growth people like Thomas Friedman, who think we can grow our way out of this disaster in some sort of clean manner. McKibben's prognosis is so pessimistic that in his introduction he fears that it might give some readers an excuse to give up. Nevertheless, in the second half of his book, he argues that we can build durable and even relatively graceful ways to inhabit this new planet and manage our descent and aim for a relatively graceful decline. In matters of food and energy, we need to think about local and dispersed resources rather than centralized ones that are too big to fail. We need to reorient ourselves towards maintaining what's left and getting smaller rather than endless expansion and growth. We need to cut our fossil fuel by a factor of 20. But whether such personal and local actions can mitigate systemic and global problems was the question that haunted me at the end of this book. I kept thinking of Cormac McCarthy's book and movie, The Road. The author is Bill McKibben. The title of the book, Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, Making a Life on a tough new planet. For film this week, we travel to Brazil. The title is Mandabala from 2007. This Brazilian documentary by Jason Cohn won a grand jury prize at Sundance for its graphic portrayal of corruption and violence in contemporary Brazil.
The film centers around three main stories. Jader Barbalo, president of Brazil's Senate, was convicted of laundering about $9 billion through 400 fake companies with money that was earmarked for the poor. His judicial cronies overturned his prison sentence. In the second story, Mr. M explains the world of kidnapping and how because of it all sorts of industries have sprung up to protect the rich private helicopters that allow one to avoid traveling in cars, microchips embedded in your body so that you can be monitored at all times, and his own company that bulletproofs cars for $55,000 each, which, by the way, is much cheaper than ransoms. And then the third story, Patricia, who details her own horrific experience as a kidnap victim. The film draws upon graphic film footage made by kidnappers and interviews with police, judges, a plastic surgeon who specializes in reconstructing mutilated ears, and one of the kidnappers in a ski mask. In Portuguese, with English subtitles and translations, Manda Bala, which, by the way, means send a bullet, from the year 2007 in Brazil. And in keeping with our essay, for poetry this week, we've published a marvelous poem by George Herbert called Affliction. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633, dying at the age of 40. Affliction. Broken in pieces, all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder, A wonder tortured in the space, Betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all a case of knives, Wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control, while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life. The elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. O oh, help, my God, let not their plot kill them in me and also thee, who art my life. Dissolve the knot as the sun scatters by his light all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief, with care and courage building me till I reach heaven, and much more, thee. The title of the poem is Affliction by George Herbert. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 12th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.